0: DiscerningHearts.com presents Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. A key figure in the development of American literature, Nathaniel Hawthorne was also profoundly influenced by his ancestors and the Christianity that underscored their Puritan heritage. A literary classic, The Scarlet Letter presents a profound meditation on the nature of sin, repentance, and redemption, and how such Christian concepts may be integrated into American democracy. We now begin our discussion on Nathaniel Hawthorne, and The Scarlet Letter. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Let's talk about The Scarlet Letter. It has been termed as one of the great tragedies of American literature, and it has been chosen by the Ignatius Critical Edition.
1: Yes, I think actually, if my memory serves me correctly, it was the first American literature title that we actually selected for the series. I actually was thinking uh, with the wisdom of of hindsight, as it were, that I wish there had been an Ignatius Critical Edition of The Scarlet Letter around when I first read The Scarlet Letter, because Mm -hmm. many of the meanings, which were not evident to me when I first read them, are brought out in the introduction and in the essays in, in that edition. Clearly uh, one of the uh, classics of American literature, Uh, indeed one of the classics of all literature in the English language, I would say. And one that's challenging to modern society and challenging to the society of the time it was written. One that asks some pretty fundamental questions about sin, forgiveness, uh, judgmentalism, penance, the innocence of childhood. All of those questions, I think, are asked in this novel, and uh, and in a provocative way, and I think ultimately a very uh, positive way, in the sense that I think it, the ultimate impact of the Scarlet Letter upon the reader is one of edification.
0: It leads you down the road to hope. It's not so dark. Yes, it's tragic in what occurs throughout the novel in many ways, but surprises of surprises there's hope and that's the surprise of the resurrection isn't it the great joy
1: it's the presence of christianity in the novel is the presence subliminally throughout the whole thing of the need for reconciliation for penance for sin but for forgiveness and how it's the pharisee rather than the mary magdalene figure who's the bigger sinner i think that that's something which is good for all of us to remember Christ came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. And if we believe ourselves to be righteous, then we're in trouble. Let me say something which perhaps encapsulates something about the Scarlet Letter, which really encapsulates one of the things that really attracted me to Catholicism. So I think it was Chesterton. In fact, it was Chesterton who said that Protestants think that they are good Protestants, Catholics think that they are bad Catholics. <laughs> um and I and I thought about that and I thought, wow. I, of course I understand this might be very unfair to, to many Protestants, but there's a there's a general truism here. And I think this is the sort of pharisaic or puritanical Calvinistic Protestantism that Hawthorne's dealing with here is that because I go to church, therefore I'm better than my neighbour. Mm-hmm. Whereas the approach of a good Catholic, i.e. one who knows he's a bad Catholic, paradoxically, is that he goes to church because he knows he's a miserable sinner you go to church for the same reason you go to the doctor because you're in need of healing now the church is it's, it's spiritual healing obviously the doctor it's physical healing with the physician but that understanding that we're all miserable sinners and they're all in need of god's love i think is axiomatic and we discussed earlier about wuthering heights about how another christian author emily bronte gives us two types of christian nelly dean the good loving forgiving open-hearted wise orthodox christian and then she also gives us joseph the pharisaical puritanical calvinist who basically considers himself superior to everybody around him because he's a puritanical pharisaical calvinist and i think that one of the dynamics in the scarlet letter is challenging All of those who, including ourselves, the readers, of course, who are tempted to see ourselves as better than our fellow man because we're good, God-fearing Christians, as we might like to see ourselves, and how actually what we really are—miserable sinners—and we'd be far better to associate ourselves with Hester, you know, the Mary Magdalene figure in the novel, than with Pharisees, the Puritans.
0: There could be those who shy away from the Scarlet Letter today because they feel it is, quote-unquote, anti-Christian or religion. Or there may be those who will use the scarlet Letter to say, look at Christianity, look at organized religion, look how bad it is. And that is why I would think the Ignatius Critical Edition brought it forward, because it can't be put in that kind of a box. We shouldn't think that way.
1: Another example, I mean, one of the reasons the the books are selected for the Ignatius Critical Editions are ones that are particularly prone to being abused by the modern academy and modern abuse and misreading of the work. And The Scarlet Letter clearly falls into that category. You know, we've seen that Nathaniel Hawthorne, his last novel before he dies, The Marble Thorn, is often seen to show an attraction to Catholicism. It follows uh, the family's trip to Rome and Italy his daughter of course becomes a nun. So Mm -hmm. to try to make of of Hawthorne some sort of iconoclastic anti-Christian is absurd. What he's calling for is true Christianity, not Mm -hmm. false Christianity. He's calling for the forgiveness that Christ preaches and not the stoning to death that the Pharisees preach. And it's a challenge to all of us because all of us are tempted to be self-righteous. None of us have the right to be self-righteous.
0: Exactly. Nathaniel Hawthorne, it should be said In writing, it seems as though he's trying to purge himself of his background. He comes from Calvinism, a very puritanical Calvinism, generations back. Again, for those who may be listening, this isn't a slam on those religions today, as much as just a reflection on what Hawthorne himself was struggling with.
1: Yeah, the narrator of the novel, I think, is significant. I mean, it seems to me that Nathaniel Hawthorne is a symbolist. He's using symbolism... Throughout the work, obviously the fact that the A on the dress it puts the symbolism right at the forefront of the novel. But the very names of the characters, the narrator is Jonathan Pugh. I mean, Pugh as in a, perhaps a diminutive shortened, for a clipped version of Pugh as in Puritan. So Jonathan is a common name, so mm-hmm. Jonathan Puritan. So it's almost as if that Nathaniel Hawthorne, as the narrator who's the descendant of these Puritans, is using Jonathan Pugh as a symbol of, you know, that I am the if you like, the repentant Puritan, which is not to be an anti-Christian. And then Hester's husband, the sort of um, rather pathological Roger Chillingworth. I've read some of Hawthorne's short stories, and I see definite similarities between Nathaniel Hawthorne and the way that he writes about the same sort of issues with a very profound symbolism as I see in the writing of Oscar Wilde. And it strikes me, for instance, the character Roger Chillingworth, you know, Hester's husband... A man whose worth, a worthiness is chilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that leaves us cold, that freezes the blood. Well, in uh, Oscar Wilde's play, A Woman of No Importance, the character who's the iconoclastic cynic, who ultimately is shown to be what he is, and the woman of no importance is shown to be virtuous. Again, same theme, a woman of no importance, and she's carrying also uh, you know, the burden of her sin uh, with her in the play. Well, he's Lord Illingworth. You know, Mm. one who has ill worth, ill worthy. So it seems to me that that some of Hawthorne's deeper meaning uh, in the Scarlet Letter is attuned to or connected with this use of symbolism, even in the very names of the characters. And of course, the most obvious, Pearl. Oh, You know, the Pearl of Great Price, the one who's uh, the shining example of Christian innocence, Christian childlikeness, Christian purity, and ultimately all of those things leading to Christian wisdom.
0: It is interesting in the character of Pearl even not to give away the ending so much as the fact that she would be the recipient of even chillingsworth possible attempt at some type of redemptive act and not allowing her to be done wrong.
1: Yeah, the thing is the, the power of innocence, the power of sanctity to actually redeem the most Chilling or evil or unworthy of characters. That presence—it is like the analogy often used: a candle in the darkness. I mean, the, the darkness can be hundreds of miles wide. It just takes, you know, a flame, a beacon can be seen for hundreds of miles. Hundreds of miles of darkness, one beacon. And I think that's what sanctity is in our society, and sanctity is in the society, you know, in a work of fiction. So, the effect that Pearl has is exactly this light of love, this light of charity, in the midst of a darkness of judgmentalism, of sin that's not been fully repented, and therefore it still carries the stain. So again, it's it's the presence of holiness, which is the mark of the work, I think, ultimately.
0: And when you read it with that lens, it takes on a totally different character. I mean, that's the beauty of the critical editions. Once that's brought forward and you begin to read even possibly through Pearl's eyes, it changes the whole dimension of the landscape of the novel.
1: Right, and that's a very, very important point you've just made there, the ability to to try to see the novel through the eyes of Pearl, through the eyes of the holy character in the work, and also the victim of the work, in fact, the person who ultimately is the innocent victim of the sins of others. But see, what's challenging... I think we're all tempted to think, well, hang on for a second here. You know, well, Hester's committed adultery. She's a single mother. She's had an affair with the religious minister. Surely all this is scandalous, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. But, you know, let, let's go back to the life of Christ. No, the life of Christ was scandalous. He has a prostitute washing his feet with expensive mm-hmm. perfume. With the priest present, the Pharisee present, who's absolutely outraged that she's do this. He drinks with publicans and sinners he does all the things that affront our puritanical sensibilities and that's because he is there to call the sinner to repentance and saint mary magdalene is in heaven the prostitute is in heaven and that's what's suggested at the end that no one's denying that hester's committed the sin but her life thereafter apart from the original sin if you like her life thereafter is one a growth in holiness particularly at the end when she comes back where everyone learns to respect her as a holy woman. There's a conflicted character early on. But again, it's a, about an edifying growth of character towards sanctity. And so if we focus on the sin and not on the repentance and the redemption, we're missing the whole essence of what it is to be a Christian.
0: It's a great book to read too, just by its setup, because it's a gunshot blast right from the very first chapter. I mean, it doesn't build up to the moment; it, the moment is there, and it's the trajectory that it takes that moves you along.
1: I think that Hawthorne uh, is a very, very powerful writer. He's a writer whose work palpitates with symbolism. Of the American writers we've we've discussed, you know, in the series so far, speaking personally, I think he's the best and the most powerful the novel is also very tight I mean you look at Huckleberry Finn and it and structurally it's loose you look at Uncle Tom's cabin structurally it's loose I mean a good editor could have shaved a you know a couple of hundred pages out of Uncle Tom's cabin and it would not really greatly harm the work you know there's great novels you can't do that with and I think that the Scarlet Letter uh, formally a tight work of fiction doesn't succumb to self-indulgence by, by the author it passes the test uh, emphatically
0: Hester's character is so interesting because she stays in that town with that A on her chest. It's almost as though judgment was passed on her and she refused to let them dismiss the results of their judgment. I mean, it was a penance for her, but it was also penance for the people who well, passed I th- I, judgment. Yeah, I,
1: I, exactly. I think it's both because in many ways, the, the cowardly uh, thing to do and the easiest thing to do would be to leave, obviously take the A off. Since she leaves the town, she could take the A off and no one would know and she could start a new life uh, and it would be her secret. I took Pearl with her and, and tell some lie about her husband dying and uh, live with a lie the rest of her life. But she chooses not to do that. It's as if, on the one hand, as you say, I think first and foremost is that she accepts and embraces the penance and the punishment. In the same way, she accepts and embraces the consequence of that sin, which is the child. Mm-hmm. She's not going to go into reject the child. She's not going to reject the consequences of the sin. And therefore, she's not going to reject one of those consequences being branded as a sinner. So I think that that's all positive. And I think that the other positive thing, the outcome of it, is that therefore she's serving as a mirror to the Puritans say, okay, I am a sinner, uh, I know I'm a sinner, I'm a penitent sinner. And for the Puritanical, or the self-righteous, that's a permanent affront because all of them, you know, from the preacher down, are living with their own hypocrisies and their own sins. And here is one who's wearing this, her sin on her chest rather than hiding in her heart. So uh, yes, she's an affront in the best sense of the word to the rest of the community, but I think that she's carrying the A almost like a cross.
0: You see that in the characters throughout the novel. They're struggling. They were judgmental, and yet they're trying to be compassionate on the backside. You're watching this. I mean, their responses are very interesting.
1: Unless you're going to deal in cardboard cutout two-dimensional people that merely are not really people at all they're personified abstraction someone who only represents an idea and has no personality but if you're not going to do that and except in a form of allegory you can't do that that in a novel you, you have to present fully rounded persons now what does a fully rounded person do very few people are such so monstrous that they're nothing but hatred any more than very few people are so holy They're nothing but transparent love. So in all of us, there's this conflicted combination of uh, virtue and vice, fighting for supremacy. So when the members of the community are confronted by, affronted by Hester and her branding as an adulteress of course they're going to respond in, in conflicted ways on the one hand they're outraged by her on the other hand they're self-accused by her on the other hand they feel sorry for her these are the real reactions of real people
0: the character i think that is the most tortured is in hester it's dimsdale ah oh, the struggle because he's allowing the sin to remain hidden in his Catholic nature, is what we're called to get out of us.
1: Right, and Dimmesdale, of course, is doing what Hester would have done if she left the town and left the sin behind and made up a lie about herself and lived a lie. Of course, Dimmesdale has to live the lie. The preacher, who everyone thinks and assumes, is therefore the most holy one in the community who's really harboring this secret. So yes, by not branding the A on his clothes, by wearing it, branded on his chest, covered up by his clothes, but the clothes here perhaps symbolizing hypocrisy, he's the one that's really suffering and being eaten away by it. Again, I think this plays into the, the whole morality of the story, that you know, if you're a sinner, then you have to get that sinner out. In Hawthorne's last novel, The Marble Fawn, part of the dynamic of that novel is the power and efficacy of the Catholic sacrament of penance, that being able to have our sins purged and forgiven sacramentally rather than having to carry them with us and of course for a calvinist who believes in predestination you know, you're either chosen you're not chosen now if you have this sin in you you can't get rid of you have to suspect that well, i can't be one of the elect therefore i'm i'm doomed i'm condemned and mm-hmm. what must that do to a believing Calvinist, am I therefore a complete hypocrite? I'm going to church, but I can't possibly be one of the elect because of this hideous sin I have inside me, which I have no way of getting rid of Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because there's no sacrament of confession.
0: And that's Dimmesdale. And it's not until later in the novel when he finally encounters Pearl here is the result of this. And the love that she emanates, the purity of what she gives, it changes Dimsdale. You're aching throughout the entire novel for this moment.
1: I and mean, what about the power of, of the novel as a, as a pro-life message? Mm-hmm. You have uh, a child that's unwanted in the sense that you know it's the product of an adulterous relationship. It's going to bring scorn and condemnation down upon the mother. But the mother doesn't have the child killed doesn't disown the child the mother embraces the child uh, brings the child up the, ch- the child becomes the greatest gift of the whole work that uh, ultimately human life is sacred and although the children suffer because of the sins of their parents you no know, the children aren't to blame for the sins of their parents so the, the very thought of killing a child because the child is going to be inconvenient or cause suffering is an abomination and pearl here is the brightest light In the whole novel, as the bearer, if you like, of redemption in the novel, is living proof that every child is sacred and no child should ever be unwanted, regardless of how they're conceived.
0: It also speaks of the reaction of the mother to the child and the fact that she didn't blame or curse the child, but loved her right exactly and from that hester even towards the end of the novel you wonder why the the choice that she makes to remain within the community and to come back and she was very quiet yet that loving of pearl
1: the transcendent beauty in the whole thing which you know mm-hmm. means for those that, that are trying to twist or distort the novel into something which is somehow non Christian or worse anti Christian are missing that transcendent, most important dimension of it, not love between adulterers, secret loves not no love between mother and child. The child, of course, Pearl, is upset when, in a moment, if you like, of affirmation of their sinfulness, when Hester you know rips off the a and throws it on the floor because they're going to uh, elope together Dimsdale and Hester and start a new life and and basically to hell with the past. Pearl is upset, and her mother puts the A back on. You know, as if you know, Pearl sort of, that belongs to you. Don't try to deny your past. that It is part of what you are. So accept and embrace that. It's about what you do with it. We all have a past. I mean, it's that wonderful phrase, I'm sure you know, that every sinner has a future and every saint has a past.
2: Partly supported by Hester Prynne, and holding one hand of little pearls, the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale turned to the dignified and venerable rulers to the holy ministers who were his brethren, to the people whose great heart was thoroughly appalled, yet overflowing with tearful sympathy, as knowing that some deep life-matter, which, if full of sin, was full of anguish and repentance likewise, was now to be laid open to them. The sun, but little past its meridian, shone down upon the clergyman, and gave a distinctness to his figure, as he stood out from all the earth, to put in his plea of guilty at the bar of eternal justice." "'People of New England!' cried he, with a voice that rose over them, high, solemn, and majestic, yet had always a tremor through it, and sometimes a shriek, struggling up out of a fathomless depth of remorse and woe. "'Ye that have loved me, ye that have deemed me holy, behold me here, the one sinner of the world, at last, at last, I stand upon the spot where, seven years since, I should have stood.' Here, with this woman, whose arm, more than little strength wherewith I have crept hitherward, sustains me, at this dreadful moment, from groveling down upon my face. Lo, the scarlet letter which Hester wears! Ye have all shuddered at it, wherever her walk hath been, wherever so miserably burdened she may have hoped to find repose, it hath cast a lurid gleam of awe and horrible repugnance round about her. But there stood one in the midst of you, at whose brand of sin and infamy ye have not shuddered. It seemed at this moment as if the minister must leave the remainder of his secret undisclosed. But he fought back the bodily weakness, and, still more, the faintness of heart, that was striving for the mastery with him. He threw off all assistance, and stepped passionately forward, a pace before the woman and the child. "'It was on him,' he continued, with a kind of fierceness, so determined was he to speak out the whole. "'God's eye beheld it. The angels were forever pointing at it. The devil knew it well, and fretted it continually with a touch of his burning finger. But he hid it cunningly from men, and walked among you with the mien of a spirit mournful, "'because so pure in a sinful world, "'and sad because he missed his heavenly kindred. "'Now, at the death hour, he stands up before you. "'He bids you look again at Hester's scarlet letter. "'He tells you that, with all its mysterious horror, "'it is but the shadow of what he bears on his own breast, "'and that even this, his own red stigma, "'is no more than a type of what has seared his inmost heart. "'Stand any here!' that question God's judgment on a sinner? Behold! Behold, a dreadful witness of it! With a convulsive motion he tore away the ministerial band from before his breast. It was revealed. But it were irreverent to describe that revelation. For an instant the gaze of the horror-stricken multitude was concentred on the ghastly miracle, while the minister stood, with a flush of triumph in his face, as one who, in the crisis of acutest pain, had won a victory—
0: Here's an element that I think Americans struggle with, and maybe that's why it's deemed one of the most tragic of novels because of the response. And yet, as we're talking, this is there actually is this great hope and there's a great joy, and it's because of obedience. In a very real way, Hester, even though it seems it's the worst type of punishment, that it's just archaic and, and it's so oppressive... It's the fruit of the obedience and the grace that pours out that even a challenge worth in the very, very end, as I said before, his response to Pearl, there's glimpses of
1: hope. Absolutely. I mean, a real tragedy, a real nihilistic work would have, you know, Hester being stoned to death and the baby being thrown in the river. That would have been a work of typical postmodern despair, whereas, you know, there's nothing ultimately but death, and it, the people that die uh, are sinners, but not sinners, because there's no such thing as sin but they they're victims, and society is to blame you mm-hmm. know, but that's not what happens in the novel that's emphatically not what happens in the novel. The child becomes their heroine, the mother embraces the suffering that her sin has caused in love. The mother loves the child, and that love between mother and child has a redemptive power beyond that relationship to impact even those that are most opposed to that relationship at first, such as Roger Chillingworth. That's a work which is profoundly Christian, profoundly hopeful, and very, very anti-postmodern nihilistic despair.
0: Nathaniel Hawthorne, again, very much influenced in that way of penance and the hope of redemption. A very much, a very Catholic, very Christian outlook.
1: Absolutely. And one which sees God as a God of hope and a God of love and ultimately not a God of of judgment, at least not a God of judgment only. (laughs) Mm. God is the judge, but God is also the merciful lover of the soul who instills within us through the power of his grace, the gifts of hope and faith.
0: One of those novels that many of us were compelled to read in high school. And now, as you have taught us so well, to go back in our maturity and read it again because you're going to see so much more. You know, and
1: as an Englishman, I'm not... I haven't been forced to read any of these in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a a new U.S. citizen of uh, just a year or so ago, I'm discovering and, and rediscovering these works of American literature for the first time as an adult over here. And it's a great, great joy. It really is a new horizon, a new frontier opening for me. And again, the Ignatius Critical Editions, as I said earlier, actually are able to help me because I'm not an American literature person and I don't understand the American context as well. You know, I understand European history, but I understand American history as well. So having these editions with the introductions and the critical essays to help me understand these works in the fullness is wonderful.
0: You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.